welcome to the Dugout Podcast on the World Football Index with me, your host, Adam Brandon. Our usual host for this pod, Andy Wales, couldn't make it, unfortunately, so I have stepped in as I was going to be a guest on this pod anyway. Some of you may associate my voice with South American football, but this this time I'm going to be talking about the championship, the English championship, that is, a division that my team, Norwich City, were champions of this season. With me to discuss how that came about is a Sheffield United fan and a Leeds United fan. I'll come to the Sheffield United fan first to see how he is, and it's James Sosick. Could you please introduce you a little bit about yourself, James? Yeah, hi Adam, hello John, um, and hello all listeners. So I run a Twitter site that's called Blades Analytics. Um, in essence, it's kind of analysing performance and, and predominantly data of Sheffield United originally. And then I've moved on to kind of look at the championship and the EFL as a whole. But obviously Sheffield United is is the, the heart and soul, if you will. So um, I try to analyse all the, the performance data, all the, t- the tactical setups of, of the games that we've been through. So it's been a, a very interesting season in that regard. Um, and as you can imagine, it's been quite a popular site this year because we've done well. I'm not sure it would have gone that well if we would have been down the bottom, but it's gone pretty well. Okay, and also join us is John McKenzie, a Leeds United supporter. How are you, John? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. You've been on World Football Index podcast before, am I right? I think so. Yeah, I've been yeah. on. I've been on once. Okay, and yep. if you could just introduce a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I'm a freelance football writer. Um, I do lots of podcasts. I do lots of writing. I'm writing a book on Marcelo Bielsa um, uh, because of the Leeds connection. And yeah, I'm a tragic individual who loves watching his team lose in playoff finals. Although I don't even think we'll get that far this time. Yeah, I could uh, I could tell by your tone on Twitter <laughs> last night that you weren't looking particularly <laughs> optimistic about Leeds playoff hopes. Um, the, the chance the chance to come on and talk to two champion two automatically promoted teams, you know, really fills me with with joy and excitement. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to the day. I hope you can't hear the <laughs> smugness in our voice. In our voices. <laughs> um, okay, let's uh, let's start by discussing the respective sides that did get promoted. So I'll start with Sheffield United, and I'll come to you, James, obviously, for this. And I was just wondering if you could just tell our listeners, as a lot of the World Football Index crowd perhaps don't know too much about the championship. So if you could just give a sort of overview of your manager, Chris Wilder, the the playing style that he has implemented there at Bramall Lane and um, and also maybe how you think they could transition to the Premier League bit of a loaded question there but if you could cover that off absolutely I'll do my best um, so to give you the, the lowdown um, Sheffield United have had a, a if you take the last two years out we've had a, a pretty poor decade um, we were last in the Premier League in 2005 um, and since that time, we had quite a, a depressing downturn. Um, Chris Wilder arrived at the club three years ago. Um, we were in the third tier of English football, so we were in League One at the time in the English Football League pyramid. Um, we had just finished mid-table in League One, despite having the biggest budget in the league uh, under Nigel Atkins. If anyone knows who he is, he's the current Hull City manager and the ex-Southampton manager. And quite frankly, we we had a very poor squad, um, lots of ageing players and lots of players that were on high wages but not performing. 
Chris Wilder came into the club and took an absolute battering ram to the whole structure of the club um, in a positive way. So all of the mistakes that had been previously made, um, just Chris turned them around in such a short space of time. It didn't originally go as successful as you see it now. Um, in the first four or five games, we were actually bottom of League One in Chris Wilder's first season. And he was under an immense amount of pressure because Chris Wilder is a very well-known Sheffield United fan. He used to be an ex-player in the 90s. He grew up in the city as well as Sheffield. He was a ball boy. So he is about as blade as you can imagine. He is completely red and white through and through. And you could see it meant more to him to be manager of this club than, than probably any other, despite the fact we've previously had Neil Warnock as a manager who's also a Sheffield United fan. But the connection just wasn't quite there sometimes with Warnock, whereas with Chris Wilder, you can see he really feels every success and failure. So he had a pretty pretty auspicious start um, as he was trying to change a big squad churn of players, getting players out of the squad, getting players in who he could trust, who were a bit more dynamic. And uh, I guess the old, the Norwich value almost, what they've done this year of getting hungry players in. So players who were not on the way down the pyramid, but who are either coming in on the way up or who have got something to prove. And that was yeah. highly successful. You mentioned Norwich there, but actually the, the Sheffield United squad that you've gone up with this year reminds me of the Norwich squad we had under Paul Lambert um, a few yep. years ago that went up. So you've got a very British core or British Isles yes. core. You could you could describe it as there. And... Um, I don't. I'm not even sure you have one foreign player. I, th- I think maybe the Lambert side had had one or two, but you know it was a very, very British side. Is my point? Absolutely. Yeah, and and it's not to say that our recruitment was anywhere near the same as Norwich. It's clearly not been. But just in terms of, I think finding those those inefficiencies in the market of recruitment, which is finding those players that are not just based on reputation. Um, I think that's the one thing we've both proven over the last well, you over the last year, especially, and, and us over a period of two to three years. So. We, we didn't necessarily bring in young players, but we brought in players who had, had things to prove. So we brought in uh, John Fleck from Coventry. This was just in the league. So one season we brought in Jack O'Connell from Brentford. These were guys that didn't really have a, a burgeoning reputation at the time, but who are now gearing up to play Premier League football and have grown with the club over the last three years. So we ended up implementing a, a system in League One that became very successful as we won the League One title with 100 points. Um, and it's a system that is really popular today. Uh, it's going to become more popular, I think. And it, it's in essence a three-four-one-two um, with flying wing backs. But the the biggest concept of the system is actually we have overlapping centre halves, which is something I've analysed a lot of football. I, I've worked in performance analysis for football clubs. I've never actually seen this before. Um, basically, our, our centre halves completely disregard uh, any thought of defensive duty once we have the ball. We commit fully to attack. We, we, we pin the opposition in their final third and there is license for the centre-halves. If, for example, the ball is on the right-hand side of the pitch, our, our right centre-back, who is nominally Chris Basham, he has license to go and either overlap the right wing-back or actually underlap and make a run on the inside. And, and often our players from those wide centre-back positions are either the furthest forward or the ones putting in the crosses for the strikers. Um, it's quite revolutionary in that regard. It, it's took a lot of coaching on the training ground from fantastic staff like Alan Nil, who is assistant to Chris Wilder. Um, and it's very, it's a system that really epitomises what Chris Wilder is all about. It's it's full front foot football. 
Um, it's not quite the intricacy, I don't think, of Norwich or Leeds. I, I think quality-wise, there is more to be said about Norwich or Leeds at times. I, I'm happy admitting that. But it is a very aggressive front foot style. And quite frankly, teams just haven't known how to deal with it. We often create overloads in wide spaces. Um, there is a lot more intricacy to the system that I, I won't bore people with than just everyone bombing forward. It, it has discipline. Uh, has been proven this year. We, we've had the best defensive record in the league, the most clean sheets in the league. So we can defend and we do have stability, but the overloads in wide areas are exceptionally key to how we play. Um, it, it creates probably 60, 70% of our scoring opportunities and it really plays into our strikers' hands because we have a guy up front who is a, a legend in Sheffield United circles in Billy Sharp, but he he doesn't have pace, Billy. He, he's not tall. Uh, he's not particularly strong or physical. But what he is, is a, a complete predator and a pro- fox in the box. And he just feeds off good quality balls into the box, which is what we're able to provide by creating this space in the wide areas where it doesn't really matter who, who we're playing against, that they are unable to cope with that overload that's coming. Um, and I think the best thing that we could say about Chris Wilder is he's an old-fashioned manager in the sense of it's all about man management and motivation. Um, we, we've done this on, and just like Leeds and Norwich, we've done this on, I think, the 14th or 15th lowest budget in the league. Um, so it, it's not been done by buying it it's been done by proper coaching by proper man management but it's also modern in the way that we play we have ball playing centre-halves as you can imagine we dribble from the back um, and we fully commit often John Egan our centre-back and Oliver Norwood our kind of holding quarterback style midfielder they are the only two players that you may see in our half when we have the ball uh, everyone else is fully committed to a, to an attack and the stats back that up by uh, Chris Basham and Jack O'Connell being the two defenders with the most open play crosses and the most open play chances created. So we certainly do commit to attack. I've uh, I've seen you mention Alan Neal quite a few times um, on Twitter and also I've heard you on a couple of other podcasts mention him. Um, just how important is he to Sheffield United's management setup? And would you worry if if he was to kind of leave that managerial setup as much as say Wilder left it? Yeah, it's a great question that Adam actually. It's not, it's something that's, um, I think you've probably had the same as an Norwich fan uh, celebrating promotion. The national media have covered us quite extensively recently and it's been great to get that, that self-promotion and the celebration of our staff and players. But one thing that has been missed, it is the impact of Alan Nil. So Alan Nil and Chris have got a relationship that stems back years, um, all the way back to when when Chris was a player at Southampton and Alan Nil was there. Um, originally, Alan Nil was actually a, he was a manager, so he's managed a lot of teams in the football league. But he was originally managing Berry, and Chris was an up and coming coach um, and a manager himself. And he went and joined Alan as his assistant manager at Berry. Alan Alan's career progressed on, and he was unlucky in, in his management career in some teams. Uh, and eventually, Chris Wilder got the job at Northampton Town in League One after he left Oxford. And he asked Alan if he wanted to be his assistant. And since that day, I think that was six, seven years ago, since that day, they, they've they been completely side by side. Um, Chris is very much, he, he's a great football mind. He, is, he sets the tone with the front foot aggressive football. He's the one who wants us to commit to attacking, taking the game to the opposition. But he's also more of a man manager. He, he bonds that dressing room. He demands it. He sets the standards. Alan's more of the coaching brain. Um, and I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here, trying to you know create thing, narratives that aren't there. Alan's the one who works on set pieces eloquently on the training ground. He's that guy watching Wise Guy uh, 10 hours a day until the early hours, watching systems across the world, uh, seeing what the next best system is, finding the overloads, finding the spaces, finding the edges that 
that get you what you want out of a game, that get you those opportunities to control a game. Um, I think he's more, John will probably appreciate this, I'm not comparing the two, but he's probably more Marcelo Bielsa-esque in his thinking. It, it's very clinical. Uh, Chris is quite passionate. And the two of them just just gel completely. Their, their strengths combined, their weaknesses just are, are each other's strengths, if you see what I'm trying to say. And it, it's really good. They are supported by an exceptional backroom staff as well, but the bond between them is excellent. I don't think we're at risk of losing Alan. I, I don't think I'm right in saying he... He doesn't have a desire to be a manager again. I think he loves coaching. He loves working with the players. And I think they have a setup where Chris allows Alan to be a, more than just a first-team coach. Um, he's almost a manager on the training ground. And Chris takes care of a lot of other matters around the club, which need doing at the present moment in time. So I, th- I think together they come as a package, as as many assistants do these days that go unsung. But they, they certainly are. There's some, been some excellent pieces about our set pieces over the years. And, and Alan is absolutely key to that. And it's all part of the... A, basically an unsung hero system at Sheffield United, which is where the people who you least see at the front are the ones who are doing some of the most exceptional work. Yeah, just just from listening to the um, Not The Top 20 uh, podcast, I'd highly recommend that podcast for anybody who is interested to find out more about the Football League. I, I was listening to an episode a few weeks ago and, and they were saying on, on there how much Wilder's football has changed over over time. So I think, this partnership that he has got with with Neil does seem to be very key to to that change. Yeah, because because my understanding is he you described him as sort of an old fashioned manager earlier on, and I think like the playing style was very typically sort of British lower league football league from what from what I could understand. He, I think I think what he has done is he has shown an ability to be adaptable, which I think is key for any manager. Um, yes, you have your principles and philosophies, but of course you have to adapt. Uh, and Chris, so let, let I mean, I, I, you know, I, I'm a Sheffield United fan. I want to talk about Sheffield United, not just Chris Wilder, but Chris has never been sacked as a manager at any level. He's worked his way up from the Meadow Hall Sunday League in Sheffield through non-league um, to the Oxford job. He brought them back into the Football League and, and they played quite pragmatic, I would say, percentage style football because that's what suited him and their players at the time. He then went to Northampton got Alan Neal in and they played a 4-2-3-1 where it was at times direct, but they also had players who, who won't be known to, to probably listen to this podcast, but in the lower football league reaches are quite talented players. Ricky Holmes, for example, quite maverick players. And they allowed those maverick players to, to take control of the system and to work their magic. So he, he kind of moved from Oxford to Northampton. The revolution was happening already. Um, you know, it went from pragmatic to winning football at Northampton, but football that could also look good at times. And then it went to Sheffield United where they they just fell into the 3-5-2, basically. Um, it suited the personnel we had. I don't think it's a, a philosophy of Chris Wilder or Alan Nil to play this particular formation. We just found a system that suits the personnel we have. And when I say that, I mean for players who I think will become very well known in the next year or so, which is a player like Jack O'Connell who we got from Brentford for about a quarter of a million pounds, um, probably even less at the time. Wasn't really being used at Brentford. Um, came as a centre-back. Uh, he's very good on his left side, but very raw. And in a four-four-two at the time, which we tried when Chris Wilder first came in charge, it just didn't work for him. He made errors and he looked like he was going to be a signing that kind of went away uh, onto the bench or reserves and wouldn't be seen. And then we went to this three-five-two, where... Jack O'Connell is an exceptional defender. He's grown into one. But what he's also amazing at is 
he has stamina like no other centre-back you will see. So he consistently runs over 11 kilometres a game. That's more than most midfielders. And he's got a, an absolute ping of a left foot that puts in a wonderful cross. He's very intelligent. He's very neat and tidy in the final third. So this system just suited us. Uh, and I think that's credit to Chris and Alan to, to basically put aside what their philosophies are, understand that in the lower league, sometimes budget and, and pressure dictates you just need to find a winning formula and then develop from there. And that's what they've done. And I think one thing that can't be said about the Sheffield United side is that we're not exciting. I think all three of the teams we're talking about today, I have absolutely adored watching their football this season for all a manner of different reasons. But I think our football is, is exceptionally pro progressive. I think Chris has now got the great blend of, of that old-fashioned blood and thunder type approach with the modern data analysis, performance analysis, the, the kind of systems. We talk about half spaces. Well, we have wing backs that play in half spaces. They become inverted almost like Pep Guardiola fullback. So we, we're certainly evolving as time progresses. And I think the coaches are evolving as the team evolves as well. OK, I'm keen to bring in John uh, at this point. Um, as for Leeds United, obviously they started off the season um, like, a, like a house on fire, really. Um, and it looked at sort of the Christmas point that they, they looked a decent bet for automatic promotion. Many people did wonder whether they would be able to um, maintain that level throughout the season. And many pointed to Bielsa's record uh, before, like looking in the second half of the season, that his teams drop off. Now, I know, John, that you don't necessarily agree with that assessment of, of Bielsa's uh, history. So I'll let you defend that a little bit in a minute. But if you could just perhaps tell us a little bit more about Leeds United, um, where they were when Bielsa took over and where they are now in terms of playing style. And um, and obviously you're not particularly keen on the, on the playoffs. So um, <laughs> I won't ask you any questions about the Premier League. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, I think, yeah, it's interesting hearing... Um, hearing James talking about Sheffield United because I guess there are similarities between um, the two clubs in the sense that he says Sheffield United they go down in 2004 uh, five sorry Leeds go down in 2004 but rather than um, Leeds doing what what um, Wilder has done with with Sheffield United we've just had a, a long old stretch of, of of sort of short-termist solutions to problems that haven't ever gone away Um and so fast forward to, to the beginning of well last the beginning of this season um, and Leeds have just finished 13th in the in the championship they've they've had a brief stint in league 1 couple of seasons down there and back up and then um, um been just sort of mired in the championship pretty much since then um mid table finishes i think pretty much apart from the Gary Monk season um, since we came up from League One we've either been in uh, sort of 15th to 13th place almost metronomically so um, really not seeing any turnaround and we've seen a huge amount of managerial input and output uh, that time so for example last season we had we started off with Thomas Christensen as a manager we ended up with Paul Heckingbottom as manager and just saw very little development uh, from that. Over the summer we didn't really bring many players in at all. I'm just looking now now at the the team that we played on uh, in the last game against Ipswich, um, the two players that were brought in who played were for Adam Forshaw and, and Jack Harrison. Um, that's pretty much the extent we brought in Barry Douglas as well. But this is still, uh, and sorry, Kiko Kassir and goal. But it, this is still very much the the same 
uh, squad that finished 13th last season. So I guess for me, when it comes to assessing what, what Bielsa has done, it's that he's lifted the level of this team 10 places. We finished third and... Um, I, I guess my answer to the question about about um, the burnout, so-called burnout, would would probably start there by 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 noting that actually a lot of the time when you analyse Bielsa's teams, the what's considered a, a a fallout at the end of the season is often, I think, um, a response of a, of a team that is playing well above its level to to end of season pressures in various ways. So so when he's at when he's at Athletic Club. You have the two finals that he's in the Europa League and the and the Copa del Rey, um, which are lost to good good sides, Atletico Madrid and Barcelona, obviously. But uh, that that sort of um, that sort of pressure ramps up on on uh, players who aren't used to being in these scenarios and and they fall away a little bit at the end, and and that's yeah. considered to be um, bad because um, th- this team have been overperforming. So. Yeah, I think I think the misconception, and I'm somebody who has also followed Bielsa's career fairly closely, especially given his links to Chile, where I live. Um, I think the misconception is that it's physical burnout, where yeah. I believe that it's a mix of a bit what you're saying there, it's kind of a mental burnout. I think the mental burnout can be linked to the intensity of his mm-hmm. of his management. But also what you said there about, you know, the expectation levels changing as the season moves on. So he quite often is a manager of a side who he gets to overperform in the first half, like you say, and then and then fade. But I think the other thing, I was discussing this with a with a friend of mine the other day. Um, I think a part of it is Bielsa's is so fixed on a particular style, a particular formation usually as well where I think over time he does become quite predictable now I think that what what also tends to happen is that when teams come to play Leeds a second time around they're a lot better prepared for what's coming to them and they've had time to figure out you know where where Leeds's weaknesses lie and that and that's that's certainly the case if you look at the two games between Norwich and Leeds this season, the one at Cow Road, which Leeds won 3-0, and the one that Norwich won at Ellen Road 3-1. It was also almost 3-0, that one as well. Um, yeah, it, it felt to me like Norwich had just knew what was coming for them at Ellen Road and were able to put together sort of a, a tactical game plan for that match, um, which they they knew would would probably work. Um, so I don't I don't know what you what you think of that. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. That you know the famous the famous adage with Bielsa is that there's no plan B. If you if you if you have a if you don't trust your plan A, what's the point of having of calling it your plan A? Um, and very much the ta- uh, this season has been the tale of two halves uh, when it comes to the season. Um, it's Bielsa is all about manipulation of space. Uh, it's all about r- rotation. All about um, breaking lines. It's all about uh, conscious awareness of, of space creation and that's all well and good when you're playing teams who are coming out and allowing you to to play in that way who are giving you the chance to find space but what we found in the second half particularly and what's so interesting about Leeds' second half of the season has been that it's the teams in the bottom half of the table that they've struggled against more than um, more than uh, the teams in the top half um, it's been that if you do sit deep against uh, Leeds, Leeds um, this season they don't have the creative quality to be able to break down that sort of low block um, and so the frustration I think 
think for for Leeds fans has been, uh, for example, the 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 Wigan game is a classic example of that, where Wigan go down to ten men after seventeen minutes or so, and Leeds are one 0 up, and they end up running out two two one losers in that game. And the frustration is is that it feels as though the ball has worked into the same areas every time in a in a bid to cross the ball in, and then the ball is easily cleared away by Wigan defenders. Um, and so that's a there's a, a a really good example of of that lack of a plan B um, that I think a lot of the Leeds fans found quite um, exhausting even. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a long season for us I think because it's it's very clear that that those um, tendencies have been at play with with Bielsa and it's and it's um, frustrating to to sort of watch them unfold as a fan. Do you not? Sorry, John, just to jump in there. Um, I, I, it's great you highlighted the the Wigan one because I think that's obviously quite popular. Maybe the wrong word. Um, quite, quite recent memory bias for us all involved in that. Um, but I think it's really interesting what you touched on there about the results against the kind of bottom half of the table teams. Uh, and obviously, they will naturally play more low to mid block. And, and you're quite right, that will limit the space. But I mean, I, I won't go into them, but obviously, you know them as well as I do the underlying metrics and the kind of conversion and chances created rates that Leeds are doing. They were, they were still consistent against those bottom half sides. It, it, it just seems that when you look back at the kind of the data and the performances that, I mean, in that Wigan game, wasn't it, I mean, I don't have the exact data in front of me, but wasn't it something like 30, 32 shots with a, a, a very high expected goals or big chance yeah. count or, you know, whatever yeah. to record. I, I remember, I remember the XG was about three to one. So, yeah, you know, the, the, the fair result would have been about a 3-1 Leeds victory and they ended up losing 2-1. Yeah, yeah, I guess that, that was where my question was leading, was just uh, as for someone who's kind of trying to analyse the league as a whole uh, and someone with your expertise, for listeners out there, is it, could this season, there may be more intricacy, but could the, the big highlight of Leeds' season, where it, I wouldn't say it went wrong, but where it kind of fell down the last hurdle, could, could it really be isolated down to the case of they just didn't take their chances? Because the data suggests that Leeds quite frankly, should have been in the top two, um, if you look at that kind of data. I, I wrote a piece for Football Whispers recently where I was trying to break this down because on the one hand, I, I do feel that frustration of there not being a, a plan B. Uh, but I do recognise, well, as you say, the underlying numbers suggest that Leeds were, were unlucky. Um, I guess my frustration came from the fact that e- even in the Wigan game, we did create chances, but the best chances we created were actually created when we weren't playing the, the, the sort of play style that we, we had generally played. Um, and I, I guess that's my frustration. We could have we were efficient enough to win, but we could have been more efficient had we maybe changed things up a little bit in, in that game. So I, I'm sort of somewhere between the two. I, want, I, I do admit that I think we've been we've been very unlucky, and I think at the end of the season has come down to that. Um, I, I was at four of the last five games, and the players aren't the players aren't exhausted physically. Um, it just feels as though they've got into this. Um, mentality of oh here we go again when that when that first goal goes in against you and you think we just we're never going to do it we were four games before the end of the season and and the the rallying cry for Leeds fans was all we need to do is win these four games and win the Premier League we, we took one point from those four games and um I, I guess that's why I focus on this this notion of um, this notion of pressure because it's it was very clear to me being at those games that that there was a frustration in 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 amongst the team. Bielsa came out in the in the press a lot and said he was struggling to control the team emotionally, um, and so I think partly it comes down to that. But we've we've also struggled in 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 getting the the right sort of personnel up front. Patrick Bamford hasn't really worked out well for us, and and we had. Um, Kimar Roof on fire um, it, 
through our best parts of the season, I think, and and that maybe threw us off too. But I, I think a lot of it as well comes down to the fact that that we you know we are an, an inexperienced squad when it comes to actually challenging for for automatic promotion, and I think that really affected us as well. But yeah, I do take your point. I think that's that's the question. Like, how did the underlying numbers still look so good when when um, Leeds uh, haven't actually come out um, reflecting that in their actual results? Does that not give you a little bit of hope for the playoffs or? Is it just the fact that it feels like you're on a downward spiral that you find it very difficult to see getting out of at this point? Yeah, and and p- partly I should qualify what I just said because it feels as though we've given away goals because our defence can be extremely flaky at times. So because we are a um, high possession team, we are we're maintaining control of the ball a lot but actually what teams were finding as well towards the end of the season is if you put the ball into our um, if you can get our centre-backs isolated or our centre-back and our full-back isolated uh, in a counter-attack we, we just have a tendency to 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 collapse um, for for a moment and then concede a goal from from very little. So yeah, I I I I'm a firm believer in XG, but I, I guess I would qualify that by saying it doesn't always tell the full picture. And there's been so many goals. Both of the goals for Wigan were just the ball ended up going forward a couple of times in in the in the game, and and a player manages to get a shot off because the defence um, just really fails to control the situation. And almost as in every case, the worst. Uh, the worst case scenario. I mean, you see that you see that in the Sheffield United game as well. Ellen Road, that that yep. goal came from from just a lack of uh, ability for for the Leeds defenders to actually do what was required of them at the very basics. Uh, and that's the frustration. So Liam Cooper's been great when we've been uh, as a ball playing centre half. It's been just what we've needed. He's not been under huge amounts of pressure, and he's great in the air. But when as soon as you start isolating the defenders and and putting them under pressure uh, in counter attack situations, then Leeds have been, I think, easier to score on than you would expect. Uh, according to the league averages. So um, I think there's an element of that there too. Yeah, I think I think that's really interesting, especially about the kind of emotional control that you spoke of um, earlier on. It's a fantastic point. I think probably out of the three teams, uh, and again, I'm not just basing this on, on Twitter profiles or anything like that, but in, in interviews, in media work, and it's understandable because of the, the Leeds reputation, the history behind Leeds. But I think that the players of Leeds have spoken about promotion more than any Norwich and Sheffield United players. And I'm not trying to create a narrative behind that. I just feel that shows how intensely focused they were. And I think it's also key what you say about the Bielsa system um, and the lack of a plan B. That means that all of your attention, all of that concentration and focus needs to be into plan A. And I think, like you say, what that doesn't leave room for, that doesn't leave room for much pragmatism for the players on the pitch. And I feel like I've sometimes watched Leeds and, and they have been absolutely outstanding and beautiful to watch at times. But then at other times, I've been wanting, even as a Sheffield United fan, maybe some of the Leeds players on the pitch to take a little bit of responsibility and drift from the structure, if you will. Maybe do something that's a little bit different. Is that fair or...? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think one of the things that I used to explain that the reason why Leeds were playing so well is because they're playing so well as a team. And Bielsa's system is all about this notion that the collective is... is is greater than the sum of its parts which is great when because as you said when it when it clicks it's absolutely scintillating football and it's it's almost like a performance it's almost like a ballet um but when the the problem with that is, is as soon as one or two pieces within that machinery don't perform to the in the way that they should the whole thing falls apart so it's not i think with a lot of with a lot of other teams that you watch when when there is that maybe that uh, reliance on um on individuals quality i mean there's there, there are certain 
clubs in in the in the championship now who i mean derby county for example are a club that i see um have got where they've got by having like front-loaded team with yeah. brilliant quality up front and you can get away with that um and yeah. if one of those players doesn't play well then you just hope that one of the others does too Leeds don't play like that there is there's almost so little space for for create well individual brilliance in in that sense that that as soon as the 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 fine tuning falls out somewhat the whole thing falls to pieces which is why i think it's been quite again frustrating for leeds fans this season because you can go from one game absolutely blitzing a team to the next game losing to to wigan or ipswich and you're just kind of thinking how how on earth does that does that happen but i think it comes down to that notion of 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 getting the team to play structurally in 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 that, in that way that is uh, manipulating space that is finding space that is moving in order that others uh, players can move into space um, and as soon as you lose that then then it becomes very very stodgy indeed so um, I think that probably plays a part of it as well okay well I'm going to talk a little bit about Norwich now now I think if you had said to me at the start of the season that we were we were going to end the season on 94 points and going up as champions uh, you know I think pretty much every Norwich fan would have said yeah you're talking absolute nonsense but with some togetherness, hard work, kind of a family unit, we've really managed to form not just a team, but kind of a whole club that is going up to the Premier League very much together, very much with a clear vision and plan. And I think of, I think this is the fourth promotion to the Premier League in my lifetime, and it's probably the one. I'm most excited about, most optimistic about cause of everything going on behind the scenes. The, the majority shareholders are, well, one of them is obviously very famous, Delia Smith, um, and her husband, Michael Wynne-Jones. Um, they're a couple, and I've, I've been lucky enough to meet them a few times down the years, and whenever I've met them, their passion for the club really, really shines through. Um, and I think this has been a key reason why if Norwich do get relegated from the Premier League, we're probably bounced back again because they are so hard working at trying to get Norwich back on the right path every time that, that we look like we're going down the wrong path. Um, and I, and this really shines through as well. Whenever you hear ex managers, even ones that have had to sack um, or ex players, they always speak about, how much they wanted to succeed at Norwich for Delia and Michael. But let's talk a little bit about kind of a basic story, how Norwich got to this point. Um, the basic story is in 2015, we won the playoff final 2-0 um, against Middlesbrough. We went up under Alex Neal, who was an up-and-coming manager at the time. He's currently doing a decent job at Preston as well. Um, after a promising start in that Premier League season, we kind of fell away. One of the reasons for that was Alex Neal didn't quite trust himself enough with the style of football that he set out to play. Midway through our first season down, um, we got we got well beat by Huddersfield at home. Um, this was the Huddersfield side who would go on to win promotion that year. And in the stands that day, um, Delia could hear the chance of Delia, Delia, sort it out. Um, also in that stands that day, obviously, was Stuart Webber, um, for, who was the sporting director at Huddersfield. And, um, and eventually he would 
he would come to Norwich just three, four months later. But he came to Norwich actually on the advice of Ed Balls, um, who is obviously quite a famous uh, Labour politician in the, in this country. Um, and he received, and Ed Balls had received advice from the ex-Spurs and Liverpool director of football, uh, Damien Comoli. Um, and Comoli's advice to Balls was that if, if, if you wanted Norwich to have success, they would have to go about it in a completely different way to the majority of football clubs. So in came Stuart Webber, a sporting director, in March 2017. Um, Webber oversaw like the last two months of that season after Alex Neal had left, Alan Irvine took charge. Um, it, it was always clear that Irvine would never get the job on a permanent basis. Weber was very much looking for his own man. Weber is somebody who knows the German market well. He brought David Wagner to to Huddersfield. He actually went back to the Borussia Dortmund second team um, to find Daniel Farker. Daniel Farker was somebody with a lot better reputation than uh, than David Wagner, so that was quite exciting when we when we heard that when he was appointed, given the job that Wagner had done at Huddersfield. Um, but after kind of the first season with Farker in charge, and Weber had described Farker as the best coach in the league, I think most Norwich fans were kind of scratching their heads after after the first year. Now, there were times in the first season under Farker where I could see an exciting style of football perhaps develop, but then we ended the season with a 5-1 defeat against Sheffield Wednesday, and oh, it, was, it, it looked a very difficult and long way back from, from that point, um, especially with James Madison, our, our best player, going off injured in that game. There was fears that we wouldn't even be able to sell him, because it looked like a serious injury at the time. Luckily, he recovered from the injury. We sold Madison, which gave the club enough funds to reinvest in players that Farker and Weber had identified, and our head of recruitment, who's been so important as well, Kieran Scott. Those three really identifying players that would fit more with Farker's style of play. And after a slow start to this season... Um, it has been a quite incredible journey from certainly September onwards where we've looked pretty much unbeatable. Um, we've lost three games since 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 September. We had lost three in August alone before that. So once Farker had got his style of play together with finding the right mix in, in the starting 11, you know, everything just seemed to click into place. Now, Farker plays a 4-2-3-1. Timo Puki is the, the lone man, I'll put that in inverted commas, um, up front. But he's obviously well supported by the three, three players behind him who have tended to be O'Neill Hernandez, Cuban-German flying winger, um, Marco Stieperman. Uh, kind of a lanky... Now, he's playing in a number 10 role, but he doesn't look like your typical number 10 and doesn't particularly play like your typical number 10 either. But he's really good at linking play. But he's also really, really good at finding pockets of space. And then on the, uh, on the other side, you've got Emi Buendia, who's been perhaps one of the best signings I can remember in, in Norwich's history, um, uh, along with Pukki as well, of course. And Buendia is one of the most exciting and skillful talents I've ever seen in an orange shirt as well. 
a little Argentinian that grew up in Spain and uh, and has managed to find his way to Norwich. We tend to press more against teams that play out from the back, really. So teams that try and beat us at our own game, you could say. And the teams who have tried to do that have been usually well beaten. Um, Swansea, Swansea away comes to mind, Leeds away comes to mind, where we've managed to press high up the pitch, win the ball back in dangerous areas and uh, and uh, and get shots away and uh, and goals. You know, we beat Swansea 4-0 away, we beat Leeds 3-1 away, Forest 2-1 away. Um, yeah, uh, there's many other examples. With, but, you know, these were all games where our pressing um, high up the pitch was really, really key. Um, we're also a team very comfortable in possession. So we do like to try and dominate the ball. And in against most sides, a lot of sides can deal with this well in the first hour of the game. And if you look at Norwich's season... Um, and, and some of the stats from the season, you'll see that in a lot of the games, Norwich have been actually either losing or drawing until sort of the last 20, 25 minutes of the game. One of our great strengths this season has been our ability to score goals in the last 15, 20 minutes of games. Um, and, and, and that's due to, not to luck, as some people have said, especially Leeds fans, <laughs> um, it, it, it's it's more down to the fact that we just wear teams down in 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 the end, you know. But you can run, you can run and close this down for an hour of a match, but it's very difficult to do for 95, 96 minutes. And and that's been something which I've personally really enjoyed this season because I haven't got too despondent if we're losing or drawing on with sort of even 15, 20 minutes to go. I always sat there having the faith um, that we would manage to to find a goal or two to, to win the game. So, James, I know that you've been particularly impressed with Norwich this season. Um, is, there, is there anything from our style of play that you've particularly enjoyed? Um, I think our kind of our diamond passing patterns have been something I've really enjoyed watching, kind of how we move up the pitch in, in these in these patterns of play and um, and also we come on to the, the young players in our side but certainly the fullbacks Max Ahrens and Jamal Lewis I know they've impressed a lot of people whenever anybody who doesn't support Norwich has managed to see Norwich this season yeah 100% I think you've done a, a really good job there Adam of, of describing naturally you're going to own your own club but describing as well the way you, you play the, the individual roles um I'm I'm so impressed by this Norwich team. I've I've loved watching them. Um, we we actually have a great record against Norwich compared to the rest of the league this year. We we, we won two one at home in the last minute, and and that was when Norwich were, had a bit of pretty poor run at the start of the season. Yeah, These things I I, guess. I, I would put, uh, I would put a pretty big caveat on that. You know, our results in August, I'm always yes. counting because it was it was pretty yeah. much a different team. And Absolutely. And certainly our confidence at that point was really quite low, I would say, as well. I, I, I would suggest, yeah, I, I was about to caveat it myself with it, it was A, a complete different team and B, it, it had not even been knitted together yet. You know, the, the idea has been implemented on the training ground. What can't be forgotten about this Norwich team is a lot of the key players are, are new this season. And naturally, it's going to take time that first five, 10 games to adapt to the championship and adapt to the philosophers of Fark. But I am so impressed with Norwich. 
So for those who love kind of coaching terminology and, and look at tactics, Norwich have, have got some of the best verticality in terms of their passing. Um, it, it's not pass for pass sake. Everything is done with a purpose. And if possible, everything is done at pace and forwards, but to feet and always to someone who is rotating off into space. There is always an option for the passer on the ball. And there is some beauty to the way that Steeperman uh, and Buendia in particular pick up those half spaces. Uh, Steeperman driving in off the right on that left foot. He's just stunning sometimes. I've loved watching O'Neill Hernandez, as you said, an old-fashioned flying winger at some times. He can cut in, but also just has pure power and speed as well. Uh, and it's all been knitted together by the brilliant Emi Buendia as well. Uh, you know, Pookie will get all the plaudits, I'm sure. But I've also been impressed defensively. I, I think people have been waiting all season to label this at Norwich that perhaps there's some flakiness. But especially since Ben Godfrey's gone into centre-back, another one of the young players just... I feel like you've been pretty pretty solid. Uh, Zimmerman yeah. uh, has clearly led well. Uh, I'm not sure "solid" is the right word. <laughs> um, I, I, <laughs> actually, I've actually been sort of more confident defensively away from home. Um, yeah. Ho- at home, we are so attacking and so open that well, you know, you just have to look at the home league table. Um, we're, we're top of the away one. But I think we finished second or third in the in the home one. I think Sheffield United ended up with the best home record. But the reason we yep. didn't end up with the best home record as well was because we conceded a ridiculous amount of goals. We actually had the third worst home defensive record, I think it was, in the, in the, in the league yep. we finished up on. Um, which for a team that has gone up as champions is almost unbelievable. Well, your your most popular scoreline at Carrow Road at half time was Norwich losing one nil. That is <laughs> that is a stat from the season. That was Norwich's most. Yeah. If you look at all their fixtures at home, that is their most popular scoreline at half time, which is just astounded when you think of the fact that yeah. you've really been walking the league for a long time. The points differential tightened up towards the end, but generally you were quite far and gone for weeks ahead of us and Leeds. So yeah, well, I've got a couple it, of it, things. It that... didn't feel like that as a Norwich fan, but. <laughs> If that was your perspective, then fair enough. But um, I was fairly confident of promotion from about December onwards, I would say. But then I got sort of very nervous in sort of the last months when we had those four draws in a row, especially. But I think that was maybe the youthness of this side um, coming through at that point. And that's what they say. That's what they say about Farker teams, isn't it? They they always burn out at the end of the season. (laughs) 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 See, this is the thing that no one, no one's actually talked about. All of all of the clubs at the top, there, the top three were were all dropped off a little bit at the end of the season. There was a there was a stage when we were swapping places with Sheffield uh, week in week out. But on on top of that, I'd like to say as well the, the the fact that you guys have both had strikers who have been scoring goals has really yeah. helped you uh, it's, it's been a, yeah. it's been a league which has been d- uh, dominated by uh, the teams who have had the better the, the better forwards and i think that's where leeds maybe have, have struggled a little bit yeah well i don't i don't think you can say a 14 game unbeaten run john is a far side <laughs> fading <laughs> at the end of the season but no I'll, I'll, I'll take your point i think the other thing obviously we have to highlight here and i did mention his name earlier our head of recruitment kieran scott um yeah, alongside Weber, who has a good eye also for for talent. Um, you know, they've managed to bring in these players from the second or even the third tier of Germany, um, the second tier of Spain. The Danish league is where Puki came from, for example. You know, it's it's been a real sort of mix and match um, effort, and it's their ability to be able to say, okay, this player 
has done this so far in his career, it doesn't look anything particularly special on paper. But I was watching an interview with Kieran Scott just before this pod, and he was saying that when they look at talent in this to join this Norwich side, they're also thinking, right, okay, we've got one of the best coaches going in, in Daniel Farker. So if we can get this player in, Farker's going to be able to get like another 25, 30% out of the player. And that is why they've taken the risk on Buendia, on Puki, um, Rancic the, the year before. All these players who have immense talent, but they have perhaps not been tapped quite correctly in terms of getting that, that, that maximising the talent out of them. Yeah, I, I think that's interesting, Adam. Um, I, I know some of the guys at Norwich. I, I don't know them as in a friend, but... I, I know of them. I've in- interactions with them uh, uh, privately. Uh, so Lee Dunn, one of your first team analysts there, I know Lee. And the setup behind the scenes at Norwich is outstanding. Um, as someone like myself who who likes the performance and data analysis side of it and that on the recruitment side, you have a, a Premier League setup behind the scenes. And that's, I mean, that, that's been there for some time, but it also stems from Weber. Um, I don't think... You know, uh, Fark's incredible and a, a great coach. The team has been put together and coached beautifully. But Stuart Weber, has, as, as obviously you've highlighted, has been key in that. I heard an interview with Weber on, on Five Live once Norwich got promoted. And he was saying how when he was at Huddersfield, um, even when Wagner was was doing really well in the, in the Premier League and, and they looked like they were staying up, he already had Daniel Farkia marked for Huddersfield if, if Wagner left. He already knew that. He, so as soon as he went to Norwich, he knew who he wanted. And he, he actually said in the interview that if Daniel Fark leaves tomorrow, he hopes he doesn't, but if Daniel Fark leaves tomorrow, he already knows who he wants next. That That is the kind of strategic planning that gets you the results that you have. Yes, you need a coach, you need a little bit of luck along the way, it needs to go all together right, but there can be no denying that in terms of putting a plan together to get promoted with the points you have, play the way you have, and reduce the wage bill like you have is outstanding. It's absolutely exceptional in a league where there is giant teams absolutely spending tons of money. And I know all those three can sit here and and I will point to Sheffield United at that. Our recruitment is outstanding in a very different way. It's based on character and a very similar way, actually. We, we take players on who people wouldn't take on. So we took David McGoldrick on at the start of the season on a free transfer. We actually took him on a trial. He left Ipswich uh, with a bad injury record without many goals to his name. And he's come to us at 31 years old, played just about every single game, 15 league goals, five assists. He's been absolutely incredible. Won our player of the season. Uh, and that happened because Chris Wilder knew people in the game, looked at McGoldrick, looked at the system and just found the knit together. And I know Norwich have done that in a different way, but with the same result. But I just think that your recruitment and behind the scenes team are utterly outstanding. And, and that's why I think transitioning to the Premier League, Norwich are, are set to be an absolute breath of fresh air in the Premier League on that regard. Yeah. And I think one of the other reasons we will be is for the amount of young players we have coming through. Um, ben Godfrey, who you mentioned at centre-back, um, Max Ahrens at right-back, Jamal, Jamal Lewis at left-back. Those are the British talents, um, regulars in our in our first-team 11. I expect to be regulars next year as well. Um, Todd Campwell, an exciting attacking midfielder um, who had a good run in the side just before Christmas. Um, and then you've got a young Argentine who we've already mentioned plenty of as well, Emi Buendia. Um, so I think I think that's going to be one of the things a lot of people are going to get excited about next year. Now, I think it's fair to say that Norwich and Leeds have given a lot of chances to young players this season 
in, in the championship. And it's been a championship generally which has offered a very handy route for a lot of talented young players from the from the Premier League, especially well Derby spring to mind, um, especially for this with their with their connection to to Chelsea. I think they've had um, a few players on loan on on loan there with the uh, Lampard and Jody Morris connection. But it, it's been very much sort of Leeds and Norwich giving chances to their young players from from their academy this year and for both those sides to do as well as they have done by playing so many young players has been really interesting to me. Um, But James, one thing which has struck me about this Sheffield United team is that there isn't that much young talent in there, especially from the Sheffield United Academy, I think it's fair to say. It it is fair, but there is a caveat to that, which is that our academy is exceptional. Um, I'm going to reel some players off and I'll tell you why we are not in a position to play our academy guys. Um, Shea Adams, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, Harry Maguire and David Brooks. They are names that have been in the Sheffield United Academy set up in the last five years and, and the first team, consequently. So what happened is because we were in League One and, and underperforming very badly in League One, these players were taken from us by Championship and Premier League teams. So, for example, Shea Adams had half a season with us uh, in terms of the first team. He was with the club, but in terms of first team appearances under Nigel Clough in a season where we missed out on the playoffs. Uh, we were in the semi-final, but missed out on the playoff final, so we didn't get promoted. And Birmingham came and took him for £2 million because we had losses to make every year. Um, because we were in League One. So we couldn't turn down that money. Yet Shea Adams is probably about to walk away from Birmingham for uh, an obscene amount of money in the summer. Um, Dominic Calvert-Lewin was the same. Everton come and took him for £1.8, £2 million. He's a Premier League striker at the minute. Harry Maguire, we know, is, is probably going to go for big money. and he, he was a star for England at the World Cup. And David Brooks, probably the most recent. Brooks had a fever last year and he only ended up playing 30 games. But Brooks was absolutely outstanding. Um in terms of talent in the league last year, you had Madison, who was clearly, you know, he was the number one. Grealish, not far behind, if not same as Madison. Uh, David Brooks weren't too far behind them two on the stats in terms of the output, the creativity. He's gone to Bournemouth for, what, 12, 13 million pounds, which is a club record for us. It's the most we've ever sold a player for, so it's good for us. But in the grand scheme of things, I, I think David Brooks is going to move on to a top six club soon and it'll be for an obscene amount of money. And it just goes to show that we we weren't in a position of power. Chris Wilder has had to fight this for so long now. We we have progressed and risen so rapidly that he hasn't had a chance to implement a plan because the academy grads who are, who are worth the first team have been stolen off him. So he's had to recruit in players who he knew who could do the job right now because we've risen up the league so fast. So from League One to the Championship, we ended up finishing tenth in our first season, but we were in the playoffs the majority of the season. And frankly, we lost out at the end in the 44th game. We nearly took it to the last game of the season. And those players that we bought in the summer of 2017 were almost, some of them, not good enough for 2018 because we knew we wanted to go for the playoffs this year. So we actually replaced Lee Evans, who we bought in January 2018, so last season. We actually replaced him with Oliver Norwood in the summer, who is a serial promotion winner from the championship and who has been utterly outstanding for £2 million. So, you know, that, that's the most money with John Egan. That's the most money we've spent. Everyone else has been freebies along the way. And five of our League One team actually started the last game of the season. So we have had to play a different kind of recruitment game because our, our progression has been so fast. 
the academy is is there. It churns out brilliant players. Kyle Walker, Kyle Norton. These guys are all from the Sheffield United Academy. It, it churns out England players consistently, but they just don't stay with Sheffield United, unfortunately. Um, we're hoping that the promotion to the Premier League now gives us the power to be able to say no. So we've got a player, a left centre-back, who I mentioned before, Jack O'Connell. He, he's 24, 25 years old. He, he's a fantastic defender. He, he can also, he's a ball-playing defender. He can create... He's very Harry Maguire in his style. I would not be surprised to see him get international honours or, or move clubs or have, have attention. But we've been able to turn down that attention from Brighton. Um, it's it sums of money previous we, we couldn't say no to, but we're, we're able to now. So I'm hoping we can either promote young players in or, or actually recruit some younger players, some more dynamic players like we need to in the summer. Obviously, that's a very passionate defence. I, I, did, I didn't mean it as a as a massive criticism, necessarily, James. <laughs> no, no. Um, <laughs> um, it, it, was, it was more of a fact. I remember kind of seeing... It was on one of Norwich's games on Sky with a few weeks to go. They put up this stat where, you know, the, the amount of previous appearances each squad... Um, yeah. had in in the championship um, previous to this season, and Sheffield United, you know, it was in the it was hundreds ahead of Norwich and Leeds, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. So my point was more kind of the Sheffield United side has been just so much more experienced than the and the Norwich and Leeds side, and for me that was also one of the reasons why you finished so strong. I think I th- I think that those experienced heads really did come I, to the fore at the end. I would say so. I'd want to bring John in on that, actually, because I'm really interested in what John thinks about that uh, in terms of that that squad depth, but not just of quality, but of experience, because I think that's something that Leeds have suffered with. So I'm really interested to hear what John thinks about that. Uh, six, we had six six out of seven players on our bench were um, uh, under-23s regulars uh, for the Ipswich game. So that says everything that you need to know about the extent to which uh, Leeds have relied on youth. Um but that said, our under-23s have been absolutely fantastic this season. So um, it's nice to see those those sorts of uh, problems that most teams may solve by getting in players, being solved by uh, bringing players through the youth system. But um, yeah, again, that that all uh, it all fits in with with what we were saying before about Leeds perhaps dropping off a little bit under the pressure. It feels very much as though the the, the experienced heads that we have uh, are Pablo Hernandez, and then and then you're looking at Liam Cooper, who I think is fine. But then you know it's, it's people like Pontus Janssen, who he, who whilst he is very inspiring, um, may maybe not the the most calm head that you would want in in the situations that we've had. Um, but look, we we have got some fantastic players coming through, and and I'm sure a lot of them will get poached. I'm sure a lot of them will end up playing for very good good sides. Um, but this season. The, the issue for us has definitely been squad depth. It's been a lack of uh, capacity to 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 actually fill the squad. I mean, even hearing Sheffield United talking, uh, Sheffield United's like three centre-backs who have been absolutely sterling this season. We've struggled to get... I mean, our squad depth with centre-backs is two centre-backs, basically. Um, if, if Cooper or Janssen is injured, we've either played Gaetano Berardi, who is a sort of uh, converted right back and then we've we've even played Apo Halma who's a uh, an under 23s player who really isn't quite up to the the standard so yeah frustrations for us have been squad depth um in in quite a few positions we've lose we lost a couple of players to injury and that's been our left back position has been particularly hard this season um and and we've gone through about four or five injuries of players who could play in that position uh, fortunately it's one of the positions we had probably the, some of the best depth in but um yeah there's there's lots of players that I would have liked to 
have, have have seen, or at least positions I would have liked to have seen strengthened. Okay, I think I mentioned it earlier in the pod about how Sheffield United will transition to the Premier League, but obviously that first question was quite loaded, as, as I mentioned, so um, you didn't quite get the chance to cover it. So... How will Sheffield United transition to the Premier League, do you think, James? <laughs> that's, the, that's the key question, isn't it? Uh, ho- hopefully well. Um, it's it's going to be interesting. We are a squad. I, I think it's fair, and this is some United fans might, might shout me down for this because it might sound like a criticism, criticism. Sorry, I think it's fair to suggest that out of all the three teams we're talking about here today, our team is probably the one based on togetherness and that that kind of fighting against the the, the grain if you will the, the reputational thing we've, we've spoken about our recruitment about these kind of unknowns or players that are cast offs um I, I think our togetherness is probably the most key out of the three teams that's that's what's got us here um from january the first to the end of the season if you do a, a league table based on just 2009 uh, 19 sorry sheffield united would top that league we, we gained the most points although norwich and us uh, only lost, I think, two games in that time, or Norwich lost one, but draw one more game. Uh, and it's been the reason we've been promoted, um, because our form from January onwards has been outstanding, and that's involved games away at Aston Villa, away at Leeds, away at West Brom, and away at Norwich. So it's, it's not been luck uh, in any way. But there's no doubt that the, in the running, the togetherness was was probably the biggest key factor. We've had our key players injured in Jack O'Connell and Billy Sharp uh, and Mark Duffy as well. So we've had to rotate the squad. And I think it links in with what John was saying about Leeds. We, we recruited very well in January. We brought in some players that may not be household names, but certainly have contributed to the squad massively um, and given us that squad depth that's allowed us to not miss players, basically. And I think our transition to the Premier League is going to have to be based on exactly that. Uh, to answer the question, we don't need to do what Fulham did. We don't need to go out and buy lots and lots of very expensive players who don't know the club, who don't know the the setup and the system. What we need to do is add a little bit of pace and dynamism because, as you quite rightly pointed out, Adam, our squad is very experienced but lacks, I would suggest, a little bit of legs. Not in terms of fitness. I think we're exceptionally fit. Um, but in terms of pace, uh, I think in the Premier League, that's going to be key. There's uh, two types of pace in the Premier League, isn't there? There's the pace of, of players like Leroy Sane and, and Raheem Sterling, but there's also pace and speed of thoughts when you look at a Kevin De Bruyne or you know any other player who's not at Manchester City. Um, you know they, they kind of pick the passes and space quicker than championship players. Uh, he's, he's played at a, maybe a slower intensity, but a, a much quicker speed of thought. So we're going to need to add some pace and dynamism and I think we basically just need to to focus on us, uh, especially at home. We do did have the best home record in the league this year. We actually only trailed at home for 34 league minutes in total, which is, I think, astonishing. Um, it's an absolute fortress for Lane. And I think we need to go on the front foot and play our system that we have done this year at home. We obviously need to be pragmatic in certain big games and away games, but I think our key is adding a little bit of pace, but doing what has got us to this position, trusting those players, trusting the system, and not being afraid of the Premier League. I, I don't think any of the teams, if Leeds get promoted, I actually think they will. Um, John will hate me for saying that. I think that probably these three teams have nothing to fear. I think Norwich have got a great recruitment system and wonderful players who will only grow and get better. I think Leeds under Bielsa will only bring in better players and, and will suit the Premier League down to the T. And they're a big club with a big crowd. And I think we're the same. You know, it, it needs to be intimidating at home, but we need to trust the players that got us here. Don't Don't rip it up but just add uh, little bits that can make us a little bit more varied and can add some areas that we're currently weak in. 
yeah, well, I'm actually going to play something of a devil's advocate here because I, I disagree with with what James has said. I don't think any of these teams will will do particularly well in the Premier League next season. I think we've gone from a stage now where um, where going into the Premier League, you 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 go we you do the sort of straight back down thing. So there's the possibility that, and this is I think the best case scenario for all three teams is is to stay up for a season. Um, hope that there's a couple of teams who um, naturally struggle in the Premier League who are, who've been in the season before, um, and then and then manage to scrape up. But um, we saw that happen with we saw that happen with Huddersfield, right? And and the reason Huddersfield did that was because um, Huddersfield had a really really um, close-knit playing squad. Uh, they didn't bring in a huge amount of new players and they, they kept their manager. I think the similar things can happen with all three of these of, the, of these sides. Um, they will be hard to beat, I think, for for Premier League sides at home because uh, Premier League sides won't, won't have uh, a huge amount of information on them. They won't necessarily know um, the best way to break them down. I think they'll be uh, surprised actually at the at the um, the capacity of these clubs to actually um, defend well and and put something together. So yeah, I think that's the best case scenario for all three is to hope that, that there are a couple of um, or maybe one or two clubs who are already up there in in the Premier League who struggle. But looking at the Premier League table now, I just don't I just don't really see that that many clubs who are going to be in in that position. I think Brighton. Um, you look at Brighton, Southampton. Um, Burnley those all those three clubs now have very good managers they have they have developed I think developed their squads for the better in the last couple of seasons um, and so the question is who do you think is better out of Norwich or uh, or Brighton or or Sheffield United Southampton and and so I think it's going to be a really tough ask for any of these three sides to to, to stay up in terms of Leeds fitting into the Premier League um, we just don't have the personnel I, and, and I think you know we would just the way that we play would just I think against the big sides potentially we would just get get absolutely hammered um, a few times um, we would probably be able to come out and hold our own against some of the smaller clubs at times but um, they're just what's needed now to stay in the Premier League with the with the top six well, well I suppose the, 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 the top two now winning everything um, and and then you have the, the four behind them with them mopping up a lot of the points it's meant that everything has become so reticulated at the bottom that you you have you've just got to be you've, you've got to be quite um lucky to stay up i think now so that would be my approach to that but uh, how, how would you feel um norwich's chances would be yeah so for a lot of the last few months i've kind of been quite confident that if we went up we would stay up um mm-hmm. and that and that just comes from watching us and then quite often watching a Premier League game right after hmm. and not yeah. noticing particularly that much difference in quality and quite often actually thinking, well, we play a lot better football than this. But <laughs> I am kind of now at the point which you've just described where I looked through the league table the other day and I didn't see three sides which would obviously struggle, um, yeah. which worried me um, instantly I, if I if I had to pick one who I think we can definitely finish above of at the moment is Brighton mm-hmm. and I'd also be fairly confident of finishing above Sheffield United but then you're looking you know finding one more and then that also relies on in my opinion Chris Hewton staying at Brighton if Brighton bring in a new manager that could revitalize them again and they might and uh, and uh, and they and they might suddenly have a, another decent season of finishing mid table like they did the first year they came up yeah. um so yeah i i am slightly concerned that i don't see an obvious 
candy. Because at the start of this Premier League season, I think like most people, I remember saying on Twitter, 99% sure Cardiff and Huddersfield are getting relegated. Yeah. But I can't see the other team. I just couldn't see the other team at that point. Um, in the end, it was Fulham because they completely screwed up their recruitment. They broke up their chemistry um, and uh, and and their excellent side from the from the championship. I still think that was a huge error bringing all those players in. And I know that something that Norwich um, won't be doing. You know, we've already said that you can almost guarantee that we're going to spend the least amount of money of the promoted sides. Um, so it's going to be very much about keeping this. Uh, squad together um adding maybe i i imagine we're going to add somewhere between sort of four or five additions to to the squad most of those players certainly three of those probably you can expect to come straight into the first team to it to improve that i think certainly there's probably one center back position up for grabs possibly the goalkeeping position up for grabs and a defensive midfield position and possibly an attacking midfield position as well. So <laughs> you got sort of three, four players there coming in, probably through sort of the spine of the side, I would say, where I would look to improve. Um, I, I, I had a big discussion on this on Twitter yesterday, and because it's still so close to sort of the heroes of this season getting us up, it felt very, I felt very guilty and a little bit dirty sort of <laughs> discussing, you know, which of these players who have done so well for us this season, you know, already talking about um, replacing them. Um, yeah. Certainly when somebody like Christoph Zin- Zimmerman, for example, who probably is one of those players I, I have a doubt about, um, but he's proved me wrong time and time again. So... Um, I was very unsure when he first came over and then sort of by the end of last season I was like oh no this guy I would have in my team and probably as captain as well Um, Mm -hmm. yeah he's a very impressive character very calm and collective he very much set the tone for Norwich in 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 the running for me um, with with his personality and we plucked him from the fourth tier in Germany he was actually just about to quit football and become a teacher in Germany when Farker brought him over to sort of help I think with the transition and to have uh, to have that player he trusts because he had worked with him at Borussia Dortmund he had Zimmerman come over and sort of have that kind of uh, that player in the dressing room you know that he can that he can talk to sort of as uh, mm-hmm. so yeah a defensive midfielder certainly I, I would I would have a look at and obviously the dream here is that Norwich's renowned scouting department unearths the next N'Golo Gunte. Um, <laughs> if, <laughs> if we could do that then, then who knows um, but I think one of our biggest Achilles heels this season if you look at yeah, I've already discussed the amount of goals we conceded at home this season but so many of those goals were s- <laughs> the same sort of goal it would be sort of a set piece cleared um, or a cross cleared and then the ball would drop to sort of the edge of the box and you would have a player with a free shot from the edge of the box stick it in the corner. Now, on the XG, these shots quite often showed up as fairly low percentage scoring chances but I would fear in the Premier League, you know, with the quality of players you've got there that these sort of chances would be 
probably converted even more successfully than they were in the championship this season. Um, so that so that is a that is a big worry um, for me. So we definitely need somebody in there to kind of win those second balls um, on the edge of the box. Um, and I think we probably need to improve our defensive midfield for that. And I would also look at having an alternative option to O'Neill Hernandez. Um, he's kind of your typical excellent championship winger. But I do worry that he will perhaps not have the same kind of impact in the Premier League because he's not, he's just not going to get the ball as much and um, and probably not as many opportunities to to run at the defence as he has done this season in the Championship. Mm. And you know, then then it becomes about how how often is his final ball really really high quality. And at the moment, you would probably say it's it's not often enough. But what I will say, he was one of the players who improved the most from last season. He came in January 2018. So we saw him at the end of the previous season. And the amount of work Farker must have done with him in the summer because he came back a completely different player. So I'd be hopeful that maybe we're just going to continue working with him in the summer. But yeah, he, he kind of reminds me a little bit of Adama Traore who went from Middlesbrough to Wolves, so who had to make that transition from Championship to Premier League. I think on a couple of sort of cameos off the bench, he had an impact, but he hasn't really had the kind of impact he was having at the Championship. So he would be my reference point there. Um, we probably need an alternative to Steeperman um, in that sort of central attacking midfield role. Um, Steeperman has, uh, has sort of come completely out of the blue, really, to... He's kind of had to replace Madison in in that role, which was obviously no easy task. Um, Stephenman had played some games at left back in the in the previous season, so you know we knew that when he came into the club that he was a midfielder. But he played there for a few games, few games at left back. He couldn't really see him working out at all, and then suddenly we put him just behind Puki. Um, in this role linking midfield and attack and he was and he and he's been a real um, revelation really um, but I do worry that his decision making isn't good enough for the Premier League he quite often overdoes it on the ball um, dribbles a bit too much and and in the Premier League these kind of things you know but you can get away with that in the championship because you always get sort of a second and third chance but quite often in the Premier League you know it's uh, you, you might only have one moment in the in the game to produce something. So, um, yeah, he's possibly somebody we can upgrade on as well. Um, so yeah, that, those are some of the kind of areas I, I would I would look at improving Norwich if if we are going to stay up in the Premier League. But um, yeah, it's 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 a strange one. We're not because one thing I always say is that. <laughs> I'm always confident with Norwich in a promotion race because it's like it feels like the whole city comes together and there's sort of a good vibe around the place and um, and we quite often get the job done. I don't think we've ever really bottled a promotion a proper promotion challenge um, where with the with relegation, you know we we quite often get, you know just don't have enough to get us over the line. Um, we very rarely win a relegation battle so um, 
my feeling is is if we do go up it's either going to be we're going to stay up fairly comfortably because um, Farker's got the absolute maximum out of his squad and we've recruited you know superbly well again in the in the summer or it's going to be a little bit of a shock to the system and the Premier League's actually a lot better than than, than we had prepared for and, and we end up kind of sliding down I, I, I can't see us just staying up is, is my point especially mm. with our style of play I don't think we'd just stay up I think we're either staying up comfortably or we're going down which um, <laughs> is perhaps a weird thing to say but um, yeah uh, it's, it's, for me it's just how much can we bottle this momentum that we've got at the moment and uh, and take that into the Premier League and um, and add and be lucky again in the transfer market. James, do, do young players, in your opinion, get more opportunities in the Championship compared to the Premier League? And, and kind of on that also, you know, what about the chance it offers young players loaned from Premier League clubs such as Chelsea spring to mind? I mentioned them earlier with their connection with Derby, for example. Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, question, isn't it? Especially when you look at, I think, the the World Cup squad. I, th- I think 70% of England's World Cup squad had, had played or come from the EFL, the, the English Football League, um, either via the team they started with was in the EFL and they've moved up the pyramid or, or as you say those loans coming down the pyramid I think perhaps in the championship there is teams even though there is teams spending some obscene amounts of money I, I think there is also less I, I want to use the word snobbery but maybe less criticism of, of young players perhaps less, less spotlight if you will there's more opportunity to bring those players in um, and, and give them a chance because I think that the, the playing field in the championship in terms of quality is a little bit closer than at the Premier League where the top six, uh, especially the, the top four, have riches beyond belief in terms of money and therefore they're able to go out and almost buy what they want in, in certain cases. I know that's not the case with Tottenham, um, but certainly with, with the Manchester clubs and uh, certainly with Chelsea as well in recent years, although that's slowed down. But I, I think there is obviously some an adage of if you're good enough, you're old enough. Uh, if we look at Alexander-Arnold at Liverpool um, as well, uh, Andy Robertson, a young player there. And there's a couple of others in the Premier League. David Brooks, I spoke about, who's ex-Sheffield United, who's gone on and done well. But I think the Championship is a good breeding ground because it's a really high-octane league in terms of intensity and speed of play, but it's not short on quality. I think the quality of the Championship has increased over the last five years significantly with uh, more more kind of parachute payments flooding players into the league that previously probably wouldn't have been available. So I think there is a high quality and a good trade-off now between what the Championship is and the Premier League and it it sets players up well. I do think that the speed of play in the Championship might suit the younger players if they're they're dynamic. You look at Max Ahrens at Norwich, extremely pacey, very dynamic, very fit, excellent quality on the ball, but all the athleticism in the world and, and that style of play suits him. In terms of loan players, we have, have experienced that this season. We've had Dean Henderson, who's a goalkeeper on loan from Manchester United, who has been utterly outstanding on and off the pitch. Um, we had Jamal Blackman the season before. I know he's been at Leeds this year, but broke his leg, unfortunately. So he hasn't had as many chances to play. But he was great from Chelsea as well. And you look at Reese James at Wigan, who has been absolutely critical to them staying in the league and, and obviously Mount and Wilson at Derby. So... I think uh, I think Reese James was probably the the most impressive performer against 100%. Norwich this season. But in in all the games I I saw Norwich play, he was a massive standout in that in that one one draw we had with Wigan towards the end of the season 
it felt like it was a one-one draw against Reese James rather than a one-one <laughs> draw against Wigan. Yeah, I agree, mate. He, he, we said the same at Sheffield United if you, on our podcast that if we were to pick a team of players against United, the best players, Reese James would be number one on that list. Uh, utterly exceptional talent, and I think there is a time and, a, a, and an age. For example, we we received Ben Woodburn on loan in the summer from Liverpool, who is extremely high regarded by Jurgen Klopp. Um, and who played some minutes, but quite frankly, didn't work. I wouldn't say he was poor, but it, it just didn't work. He, he wasn't ready. And I think that the loans have to be right. They have to be ready. But there's no denying for me that a, a player like Reese James, a player like uh, Mason Mount or Dean Henderson coming and playing on loan in the championship, it, it progresses them on better than, than Premier League 2 or under-23 football will. It gives them that, that, that proper competitive football at a very strong level at well-supported stadiums and a high quality of football to then go on and play in the Premier League next year. I, I might be wrong on this. I might be well off because I know Cardiff and Fulham have come back down this year and perhaps us, Norwich and whoever comes up from the playoffs will go back down next year. But I don't think the bottom six of the Premier League and the top four or five in the Championship, I don't think there's too much between them. Um, and I think if you have lone players that are playing those top four or five teams in the Championship, and they play well, I think it shows they're ready for the Premier League. So I think that's why clubs will will do it and will continue to do it. I, th- I think when these young players come from the Premier League to the Championship, I think they've got to be very careful about what club they choose. Not necessarily the club, but it's going to be it's going to they're going to have to look, and their agent or 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 their or their parent club needs to look at what kind of manager, what kind of coach are they going to be working with? Because if it is a coach which like Farker, for example, tends to work very well with young players. That, that is Farker's speciality, if you will. You know that that's one of the reasons why we brought him over. He, you know, he he had been working with Borussia Dortmund's under twenty threes for you know very well for a couple of years. It you you've given the Woodburn example there. Now he didn't work out at Sheffield United, but he went into an environment that perhaps wasn't the right fit for him um, where if he goes to another club where you've got a manager perhaps like Farker I'm not saying Woodburn would have definitely worked out at Norwich here I'm just giving a hypothetical um, possibility situation Um, you know maybe that would have been a a much better fit for a a player like that yeah that's that's completely fair Um, I I, we have a very particular number 10 as well a guy called Mark Duffy who spent his entire life in the lower leagues or non-league um, but in our system, he's, he's integral and he doesn't play like a number 10 as such. He is a controlling influence at number 10. He's not threading through balls through left, right and centre. He's there to ensure that we keep the ball in the final third, to complete passes uh, deep in opposition territory, to allow the centre-halves to overlap or underlap and create those manipulation of overloads, which we spoke about earlier. So I think, yeah, you, you, you're spot on. I think that's why Premier League clubs have a lot of loan manager positions these days now. So they have someone in charge of loans who not only looks after players who are out on loan, but looks at the next loan. What is the style of play of that team, that manager? Will our player fit into that? And sometimes loans just don't work, do they? I, I, you know, Ben Woodburn just, just didn't quite work, but Dean Henderson has. He's been exceptional for us because his character and his application has, has just been fitting in nature with the club. And you're quite right. Um, you know, you look at Mount and, and Wilson at Derby, Lampard has almost built the team around them. Um, and it, it's, it's really endeavoured them to be some of the best players in the league. Uh, they they certainly missed Mason Mount when he was injured, and I'm sure John will talk a lot more about them in the, you know because the, the upcoming playoff game. But it's allowed you have to pick the right club for the players, and you have to pick the club that's 
not only going to allow the players to advance them, but also advances the player as well, so they don't just stagnate out on loan. And John, how, how, how do you see this topic um, about youth opportunities uh, for Premier League players in the Championship? Um, have, have Leeds had any on, on loan from the Premier League this year? Yeah, we've had a pretty bad bad run of uh, loanies. We had um, Izzy Brown on loan from Chelsea, uh, and also Jamal Blackman, the goalkeeper. Uh, Izzy Brown arrived injured um, and was on some kind of interesting deal where he wasn't going to get paid until he started getting regular uh, performances but he has really flopped for us he's never really looked uh, as though he's got over his injury his injury he'd been injured for over a year by the time he started training and so there was very little um, sense in which he was going to come come back and suddenly just slot into the team and play well he's still around with us um, Jamal Blackman unfortunately broke his leg um, two or three months ago and so was sent back to Chelsea just before it, the 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 um the point at which he was going to start playing regularly for us which is why we then brought in Kiko Casilla from Real Madrid um so we've had we've had a bad a bad run of it i'm i'm quite negative when it comes to loanees and and youth players in in general when it comes to the premier league anyway i don't I don't have the the faith that the um, development is really being best served by by necessarily um going out to other clubs. I think it, it, it works when it works. You know, you have to think of someone like Deli Ali who played, I think he played about 50 times for MK Dons before he played for Spurs. And that clearly had a, a big impact on his development. Uh, but it has to be done correctly. And um, I, I suspect that's, that that's the, the, the route that I would go down. Um, how do you make sure that this development is being done uh, for the good of the player rather than the fact that the, the 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 parent club just has so much talent on its books wants to pick up all the talent early and then farm it out elsewhere so i, I maybe a little bit more negative uh, perhaps than james yeah well I, th- I think that just comes back to basically the parent club and and the club taking them on loan just doing their homework properly on the on the player now mm, looking back yeah. at the players norwich have had on loan since since fark has taken over Last season, two of our best performers uh, were Harrison Reed. He came on loan from Southampton. Mm-hmm. And this year, he's been one of the players of the season for Blackburn. Um, yep. And also Angus Gunn, who mm. was almost faultless, really, in, in his performance. Um, he, he was, along with losing Madison, the player I feared most losing um, and, and, and having to replace this year. And he went to uh, Southampton from Manchester City, I think it was for something like 12 million. So, you know, his, his profile really grew for, for, for that year with Norwich. He, he, he is a Norwich lad. He was born in Norwich. He's, his father is obviously Brian Gunn, uh, a Norwich legend. So, so that mm. certainly helped, you know, with his development at, at, at Norwich. Mm. It was almost sort of a ready-made situation for him. So he's fortunate that. But there's, there's been quite a few success stories, I, I would say, especially this year in, in the Championship. Um, I think you've got Jay De Silva at Bristol City. Uh, mm-hmm. He's he's been one of their best performers. Tammy Abraham at, at Aston Villa, and these are players who have gone into a side and you know given them just what they needed. So I mm-hmm. think it is just about that the right management. I, I certainly over the years at my club Norwich, I've seen it's been a bit what you pres- you prescribed earlier. You know, it can be very hit and miss. Um, but what I've seen, I think, over time is there's, 
you're, I think you're getting more hits than misses. I, I think maybe your perspective of this situation is slightly darkened or hampered <laughs> by the fact that Leeds haven't had particularly good luck, especially with yeah. injuries. Um, well, everything that we do is short-termist, and short-termism really isn't the friend of, of good loan spells. So, um, but I, yeah, I, I would I would definitely say that the the championship is a brilliant um, league to develop as a player. Um, often, I think that 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 will come um, more when you are bought bought in from other clubs and then allowed to develop and then go back into the Premier League uh, uh, in terms of buying rather than simply being loaned. But yeah, it, it works. It it does work and it has worked for some and um, it's exciting to see when that happens. We had Jack Harrison as well, I forgot to mention, um, from City. So we've had like two Chelsea loanings of the City loanee and it hasn't really worked as well as you'd hope for it to work out and I guess that's where the, 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 the negativity comes from. Indeed. Now we're going to move on to talk about um, the fairness of the playoffs um, and, and, and John... I know that you're not particularly looking forward to the playoffs, uh, as as we've mentioned already. Leeds, I don't <laughs> think, have a particularly good record in them. Are you somebody in favour of playoffs, or do you think that they should be scrapped and you should just promote the top three clubs? Uh, do you know what? I, I do quite enjoy the playoffs. You've mentioned that Leeds have a bad have, have bad playoff record, but we only really have a bad playoff record in finals. So um, up until the final, I'm usually I'm usually quite enjoying of the playoffs. But um, you know, I don't know. I think it goes either way. We know at the beginning of the season what the conditions for for quali- uh, promotion to the the league above are, and and I quite like the the whole playoffs set up the playoff system I do think it's relatively arbitrary um, and so I suppose that stands against it um, but that said I don't think Leeds necessarily you know the, the league lasts a certain number of games and had had it gone on a little bit longer I'm not sure Leeds would have finished third either so I suppose there's an equal level of arbitrariness there um, but I I I, I personally love um, the, the the playoffs, um, particularly the semi semi-finals when you you, you go home and away uh, over those two legs, and it's it, it's always been a good fun as a lead supporter. So I am I am looking forward to the the experience of the of the playoffs because it it is what you really look forward to. I think as a supporter, the ability to play those sort of um, deciding fixtures. Um, but I'm not particularly sanguine about our chances. But that might just be that I'm a negative individual. <laughs> okay, well. Who, who who do you see as winning the playoffs this year? Yeah, so I think everyone would say that Aston Villa are the favourites. Um, Derby County have sort of scraped in and out. They they got in on the last day. They, as we've already mentioned, I think they're they're quite a top heavy side. So they've got uh, brilliant players going forward. Their the front three, well, I suppose their front three behind Martin Whitehorn, um, are just terrifying players to face uh, particularly when as I've mentioned you're you're nervous about your centre-backs or full-backs getting isolated in counter-attacks um, so it will be interesting to see how how the Leeds um, derby game goes I think um, Leeds have have managed to have the psychological edge on on derby this but there's season a, there's a lot of weight with that game now isn't there Given yeah the... yeah well there's a, there was a lot of weight with any <laughs> almost any of our games I think we've done a really good job of creating narrative to to really uh, put the pressure on for us but yeah I think derby's the biggest one with with the spygate narrative um I think that I think we got under the skin of Frank Lampard. I think there'll be a lot that, that those games are going to be feisty. Um, 
I think that it, I'm glad that we've got Derby in the sense that you know the both times we've played them we've we've deconstructed the way they play really well. I think they're used to coming out and being attacking. I don't think they're going to come out and sit deep against us and try and hit us on the counter attack. Um, so yeah, I I wouldn't be surprised if <laughs> if the game went one of two ways. If it went very much sort of a five nil drubbing one way or a four nil drubbing the other um, over the two legs. So. That one's up in the air. When it comes to when it comes to West Brom and Villa, I just can't see West Brom coming out of that one particularly well. They've sort of been they've sort of been chugging along a little bit like Leeds um, recently. Um, again, I'd probably I would prefer to get if we got through to get West Brom, but um, Villa again. Villa just have those players that you that you worry about, don't they? They've got their forward their, again. Their yeah, forward line is just so well stacked. Um, you think of players like Tammy Abraham, but they've also got Jonathan Codger. They've got uh, Albert Adoma. They've got Andre Green, who, who is scary. Um, Anwar Al-Ghazi is an, a fantastic player as well. Uh, and so, I, 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 you know, anything can happen in, in, a, in a playoff final. You know this. I went, I was at, I've been at the couple of the last two. Um, and what surprised me is that the, they don't actually follow the way that you expect the, the games to go um, based on the season because it, there is so much pressure that it does become quite stodgy. Um, but yeah, I would, I would, if I had the chance to say who, who would lead face, it would definitely be West Brom over, over Villa. Yeah, I've, I think it's, it, it is difficult given the form to look past Villa. Um, I actually made a very bold prediction back in February when they were struggling that once Grealish came back in the side, I could see them being the team who would make the run to to the playoffs. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm probably going to stick with that prediction. Um, mm. But I'd actually personally like to see Bielsa um, triumph in, in the playoff final at Wembley. I think that would... I always try and look in these playoffs what would make for the most amazing TV viewing, and I and I think <laughs> I think Bielsa, you know, managing to to turn it round at this point and 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 win that playoff final at Wembley would would certainly be the story I'd probably enjoy watching most. Um, so yeah, I, I I don't think probably too many Norwich fans, uh, fellow Norwich fans, probably share that sentiment. But um, obviously, I've got that. <laughs> I've got that connection with, with Bielsa, so I always like to see him do well. I think that's pretty much it for, for this podcast. Um, it's, it's been a very enjoyable chat with John and James. Um, I hope our listeners have enjoyed it too. Um, I'm just going to come back to John, though, quickly, because I know that you're writing a book about Marcelo Bielsa, so I'm pretty sure a lot of our listeners, especially as a lot of World Football Index listeners are obviously interested in South American football, um, so they naturally be interested in Bielsa too. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that book you're writing. Yeah, okay. So um, one of the things, as soon as Bielsa was was rumoured to be coming to Leeds, um, I'd, I'd already been thinking about writing a book-length treatment of something. Um, and when that news started filtering through, I was like, right, this is this is my chance to to write about um, Bielsa's first season at Leeds, the, the one season. So the book uses that as a, as a back backbone uh, the 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 season at Leeds but it is it's also sort of uh, semi-biographical I, I try and uh, trace a lot of the the background of Bielsa elsewhere so there's a lot of stuff about his time in Argentina and then his mo- movement to obviously via Mexico to to Europe um, but it's not it's not strictly biographical because partly because um, 
you i can't i i mean he he doesn't give interviews he's famously media reticent so he doesn't speak to people um one-to-one which is kind of important if you're going to be able to do a biography of someone i i think because even if even if you can't get hold of them there's there, there will be other interviews out there that give you a, a sense of of what they might be like so uh, I'm fascinated in the idea of how do you write a, a biography or, or write about someone who doesn't want to be written about. So that's the sort of back back backdrop of the book. Um, so thinking about the way that you might write about someone like Marcelo Bielsa, who's made very careful, he's been very careful in his career to to not say too much about himself. Himself. So the book's thematic. Um, it just traces some of the big ideas that that um, often follow Marcelo Bielsa around. There's a chapter on language, the importance of language, the way that he uses language, the way that he uses an interpreter, and then it moves through other areas. So there's a there's a chapter on space uh, because his um, tactical philosophy is all about space there's a chapter on place because the communities and uh clubs that he works in are really important to him so i'm just doing a little bit of an exploration of why that might be the case um i'm looking at things like aesthetics um what does he think beautiful football is what does he think the 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 purpose of football is as a as a phenomenon um and then I, i look at things like politics as well how does um how does Marcelo Bielsa fit in at Leeds where Leeds has a tradition of uh, being a dirty Leeds. Um, and then there's a, there's a chapter on legacy as well. So how do you talk about someone like Marcelo Bielsa as being a great manager when actually, if you look at his career, it may, may not look that, that way. Um, but the thing that fascinates me most about Bielsa is he's such a, I suppose he's, he's 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 almost a tragic figure, you know, and and he's also a very complicated figure. He he always uh, the the book itself has got a working title of Marcelo Bielsa uh, between the lines um, because there's so many areas in which his he, he you'd think that you could you could find a really clear cut way of explaining what it is that he thinks on the topic, but actually he can appreciate both worlds that he finds himself often caught between, and will try and take either try and take the best um, parts of both and uh, or just um, hold them together in some kind of um, more, more paradoxical tension so I'm trying to get a little bit more towards that side of things a little more a little bit more of the psychology what is it that what is it about Marcelo Bielsa that makes him the way that he is so um, yes there'll be a lot of biographical stuff I'm trying to cover a lot of the, the, the stuff at Newell's Old Boys um, and then the stuff around Europe as well but I'm also interested in some of these motivations uh, some of the questions that don't get asked in some some of the standard biographies so um hopefully the book will be out by uh, towards the end of this year um but it's yeah it's still being written as we speak um where can people find you on twitter yeah so on twitter i'm at john that's j-o-n underscore mckenzie and it's m-a-c-k for that um if you are interested in the sound of the book, the best way to follow me is probably by subscribing to my newsletter. Uh, I write a weekly newsletter sort of documenting my experience of writing the book and also uh, comes with a, a sort of mini essay about something I've thought about in the week that may be nothing to do with Marcelo Bielsa and then a few links to interesting things I've read in the week. Um, if you want, if that sounds interesting to you, you can subscribe to that by going to my Twitter and um, clicking on the pinned tweet, which has a link to my Substack newsletter. I can certainly highly recommend that you follow John and james on twitter you can and also i i'm really looking forward to your book john i have to say um any idea when it might come out i imagine these things usually take a few months don't they so probably looking at the end of a year maybe the end of the year or beginning of next year just right. depending on how the publication process goes and I, I still don't technically have a publisher at this point but i do have my book is being considered by a couple of agents but then i have a couple of uh, backup plans as well so it, it all depends on how that goes right okay 
And actually, something just popped into my mind now. Isn't there a... Is it Netflix who are also doing a documentary following Bielsa this year or, or Leeds this year? There's been an independent so, company who filmed a documentary right. yet, um, and we're not entirely sure where that's going to come out yet. Um, <laughs> if it will come out at all, depending on how it the, could be, uh, could be interesting how that <laughs> contrasts with your with your book and, and the yeah. timings of that as well. Yeah, I don't know how much involvement Bielsa actually has in that. As in, I don't think that he will have given them no. any interviews. So it, yeah, it could be it could be fascinating. I certainly raised my eyebrows when I when I when I heard about it because that sounds like <laughs> definitely not the sort of thing that Bielsa would touch. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah that, it's going to be interesting um, to see how that compares and contrasts. I think with with your with your book. Okay, and James. Where can people find you on Twitter and any of the work that you do? Uh, so it's at blades underscore analytic on Twitter. Um, uh, lots of different EFL content, not just Sheffield United related, but uh, you can imagine that's the, the precursor for much of the work, if you will. Um, and I'll be doing some of a podcast over the summer as well with the, as you mentioned, them, the not the top 20 guys, who's a, a brilliant EFL type podcast as well. So I, I guess John's hoping he's not on that podcast next year. I'm hoping he's probably on some other podcasts, but uh, Premier League ones. But yeah, uh, pretty much just just out there in the social media world, and uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, talking about Premier League football next season. So you can find me at Adam Brandon eighty four on Twitter. I'm pretty sure most World Football Index listeners would know that by now. But for any newbies who are joining us today, and that's where you can find me. Um, all what's left to say really is a huge thanks to John and James for joining me on this podcast. Huge thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us as well. And it's goodbye. Goodbye.